We are changed. We're gonna change the way we run. We're gonna change the way we eat. We're gonna change the way we block. We're gonna change the way we tackle. We're gonna change the way we win. Well, look who's back, and I got the fresh rap like Hakeem on the boards here to put it all back. 22's in the rear view. What you gonna do? New year, new flow. This one's for you. Losses upon losses, start tossing them in the trash. Shore up your cash flow. Let's go. Cap Calloway said, hi 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 ho Know how you're allocated. Financial rhythm syncopated. Yields popping, inflation dropping, growth stocks deflated. Time for another lesson about investing in a recession. Get defensive, control possession. You stressing about yield curve inversion? Take your portfolio on an excursion into value stocks, money market, short-term paper. No taper from the Fed, no pivot on rates. This ain't 08, it's a new dynamic, one that requires finesse. Let's get back to fundamentals on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and hello to 2023. I couldn't wait to see you. There's a lot of things we can say about last year, but I prefer just two words. Bye-bye. A bear market for stocks, the worst year in over a century for the 60-40 portfolio of bonds and stocks, inflation at a 40-year high, the largest and fastest interest rate hike since the 1980s, the stalling out of the U.S. housing market, persistent COVID, Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, the crypto winner, the crippling of risk assets overall, and that's just the top of the list. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Well, now that we've gotten that out of our system, let's get down to business. It's business! It's business time! Oh yeah, Concord style. Well, let's fly into the new year by first wrapping up the year that was in a tale of the tape with the final market stats from 2022. U.S. Treasuries, historically a safety raft for investors when the equity market is caught up in the waves, were anything but that last year. The Bloomberg U.S. Treasury Index, which is a basket of U.S. government bonds of various durations, fell 14.5% last year, the worst returns in its 40-year history. These aggressive interest rate hikes scared investors out of bonds, causing more yield curve inversions than a yoga retreat in the Catskills. Those hikes also brought the bears to the stock market. The Dow finished down 8.75% for the year, climbing out of a bear market in November, rallying 15% in the fourth quarter, but then dropped 4% in the month of December. The S&P 500 down 19.4% for the year, the worst year since the 2008 financial crisis and the seventh worst year in record stretching all the way back to 1929. It did rise 7% in the fourth quarter, but it fell 6% in December, giving up some of those gains. The Nasdaq composite got hit all year long, down 33% for the year, but only fell 1% during the fourth quarter, but then it was ravaged again in December, falling 8.75% for the month. That Santa Claus rally a lot of people were hoping for? Not quite. We just lived through the worst December for the U.S. stock market since, get this, 1926. Why was the NASDAQ hit so hard? Well, those rising interest rates in the face of slowing growth means profits are going to be squeezed, and investors have been losing their confidence in some of their favorite growth stocks for the past year. Just listen to some of these drawdowns for some of the biggest, most widely held stocks from their recent highs. Tesla down 73%. Meta 69%, Amazon 55%, Netflix 58%, NVIDIA 57%, Microsoft 29%, and Apple down 28% from its most recent high. In all, some $30 trillion in market value was wiped off the U.S. stock market last year, according to calculations from the FT. 
What did all this wealth destruction do to investors? Well, the average 401k balance is down to $97,200, down from $126,000 a year ago. The personal savings rate is at 2.8%. That's down from 8.7% in December of last year. If you were looking for upside in 2022, you found it in the oil patch. Nine out of the top 10 best performing stocks in the S&P 500 last year were oil and gas companies. The best performing stock overall in the stock market, Occidental Petroleum, which gushed returns of 119%. Guess who's been buying a lot of Occidental Petroleum over the past couple of years? Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. It owns 20% of the oil giant. Looking around the world, the best performing country stock market, according to our friends at YChart, well, that goes to Brazil with the MSCI Brazil index gaining one and three quarter percent on the year. Second place goes to India with the MSCI India index losing close to 8% in 2022. The worst performing global market, well, that belongs to China with the MSCI China index dropping close to 25% on the year. And what a wild year in commodities. Oil and gas prices stole the show last spring when crude oil spiked to over $120 a barrel and gasoline topped $5 a barrel here in the US. But after it was all said and done, Orange juice claimed the top spot as the best performing commodity last year, rising 46% on the year. Heating oil and hard rice were right behind OJ. The crash of lumber prices told the tale of the bear market in the housing market as prices fell more than 66% on the year, the worst performing major commodity in 2022. Oat prices and ethanol were also among the biggest decliners on the year. And all that sets us up for the big three this week. Number one, how about some potentially good news and no one better to get that from than our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group. If you go all the way back to 1950, according to Ryan, the only times that stocks fell in back-to-back years were during the vicious recession of 1973 and 1974, and then three years in a row during the tech bubble implosion of the early 2000s. The year after, a negative return saw the S&P 500 up 15% on average and higher 80% of the time. A 10% or greater loss showed the following year up only 8.5% on average and higher 63% of the time. Out of the 20 negative years, only three times did returns get worse the following year. That was in 1974, 2001, and 2002. Is 2023 going to be one of those anomalies or are we going to get a little rally here out of the bear den? We'll have to see. Number two, gold is having a moment. Gold prices hit their highest levels since June of last week, up above $1,800 per ounce. Gold used to hold the crown as a safe haven, but has lost its luster for most investors over the past 20 years. But the last 20 years have experienced relatively low interest rates. Since holding gold actually pays no interest to the holder, it was just a heavy asset that seemed to drop in value every year. But the returns on gold versus stocks tend to be inversely proportional, which means that when stock prices fall, gold prices tend to rise, and that's exactly what's been happening lately. As the drumbeat around a potential recession gets louder, prices for gold may hang out around $1,800 per ounce, and you'll probably see a lot more gold investing commercials on television trying to get you to own your own little piece of heavy metal to ride out the storm. But just remember that gold in 2023 is not the same as gold in 1963, 73, or even 83, and returns may lose their shine as capital markets improve. And number three, even though investors like us have been tossed around for the past year and watched our portfolios get attacked by hungry bears at the picnic, we really haven't capitulated or thrown in the towel, at least not yet. According to data from EPFR, U.S. equity mutual and exchange-traded funds have attracted more than $100 billion in net inflows in 2022, one of the highest amounts on record going back to the year 2000. That's kind of unusual, historically speaking. U.S. households typically sell about $10 billion in stocks after the S&P 500 falls at least 10% from its peak. We saw that happen in 2015 and 2018, 
but not so much last year. While a lot of mutual funds are holding more cash than usual, mutual fund customers have yet to really throw in the towel. Hedge funds, on the other hand, were actively betting against the stock market throughout the summer. Net bearish positions tied to stock futures hit a record over the summer, according to Deutsche Bank. And while those have come down considerably since then, the share of their positions invested in bullish stock positions versus bearish has fallen to the lowest level since early 2019, according to Goldman Sachs. While individual investors didn't fold completely, anytime we tried to buy the dip last year, we got our knuckles wrapped pretty hard. According to Dow Jones market data, the buy the dip trade had its worst year in 2022 since 1979, with stocks falling around 0.7% the week after a 1% decline. That may make us a little bit more cautious in 2023. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be a shortened trading week given the New Year holiday. The labor market will be front and center this week as we will get the December jobs report on Friday. Estimates are around for 200,000 jobs to have been added last month, which would be a slowdown from the 261,000 job gains in November. Hiring freezes and layoffs in tech and crypto are starting to become more frequent, but there are still sectors like trucking, healthcare, education, and leisure and hospitality that need workers. We'll also get the JOLTS report for November, the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, which shows us how many workers voluntarily quit their jobs and how many openings there are are in the labor market. Back in October, there were 10.3 million job openings, about 1.7 openings for every available worker. Remember, the Fed is actually trying to cool down the labor market and wage inflation. Wages rose 5.5% in 2022, and that puts more pressure on corporate profit margins, and companies end up passing those costs onto consumers. The central bank, at its latest meeting, forecasts unemployment to hit 4.6% this year. That would be up from its current rate of 3.7%. It's going to be a relatively quiet week on the corporate front as companies enter their so-called quiet periods ahead of earnings season. That'll start up next week, and expectations are not so high. But none of that is slowing down the kickoff of the 2023 conference season as the Consumer Electronics Show returns to its pre-pandemic in-person setup in Las Vegas, Nevada, January 5th through 8th. You're going to be hearing a lot about Web3, the metaverse, digital health, mobility, and virtual reality, and the electric automakers are going to be rolling out some of their latest toys. Speaking of automakers, we're also going to get December sales from the major automakers this week, and a lot of eyes are going to be on Tesla. Shares of the OG EV maker are in the spin cycle, down 36% in the past month. If you're looking to take the temperature of the market, look no further than the money flows. And no one has a better view on that than BlackRock, one of the largest asset managers in the world with nearly $8 trillion in assets under management. A lot of those assets are in index funds and ETFs via iShares, one of the largest ETF issuers on the planet. Salim Ramji is the global head of iShares and index investments for BlackRock, and he is our special guest on The Express this week. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Caleb, for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I've been a fan of your show. Well, you're just out with your third annual report on investor progress. There are some big numbers in there, and it was a very interesting dynamic and kind of a debilitating year for investors in 2022. Give us some of the highlights. You have so many products out there. What surprised you, and, and what are some of the highlights of the report? What's really surprised me, I mean, this year's ending, not like it started, and it's been one of the most difficult years on record for our 35 million clients all over the world with stocks and bonds both down by double digits at the same time. And there's a lot of reasons for that, whether that's inflation, whether that's an energy shock, whether that's a war in Europe, but it's been a tough year for investors all over the world. And I think the things that are surprising that investors all over the world are really turning to ETFs as their investment vehicle of choice. 
And so when we look at flows in ETFs globally, there's something like $800 billion. And that's closing in on the second best year on record for ETFs. Our own flows within iShares are north of $200 billion. And what we're finding is that investors all over the world are turning to ETFs, even in times of volatility and even in times of market stress. And that's been, I would say, a really reassuring and pleasant surprise given all the things that have happened in the market this year. Yeah, $120 billion of that went into bond ETFs of that yeah. $222 billion you took in. So there was money flowing pretty healthily throughout the year. But still, that's only 2% of the total fixed income market, that $120 billion in ETFs. So there's probably room for growth there. And in a year like the one we're facing in 2023, the thoughts of a recession potentially, slowdown going on economically, compressed profit margins due to those rising interest rates, you feel like we're going to see a lot more flows into bond ETFs next year? Yeah, I do. I mean, bonds are really back. And one of the, if you will, positive benefits of the corrections that have happened in the bond market has been that bonds are an income yielding asset again. And so we're seeing wealth managers put them into model portfolios. We're seeing individual investors look to the yield in bonds and even very short duration bonds, even short duration treasury bonds are yielding some very nice income levels for investors. And so we're, we're really seeing bonds across the spectrum, whether it's treasuries, it's corporates, it's high yield in inflow. And we're seeing more and more investors looking to bonds as part of their portfolios, given that the yields are so much better than they have been in more than a decade. Finally, there is an alternative, right? Salim, we've gone years without it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the, again, positive surprises from an iShares and an ETF point of view is that with all of the volatility in the bond market, that people are moving more towards bond ETFs as their way of getting access to the bond market. And so we're about $120 billion in inflows, and that's a record year for us, even with two weeks left to the end of the year. And we're very optimistic about what that could do into next year and into the year after and the like. I mean, you mentioned it's just 2% of the bond market. We expect by the end of the decade that there'll be $5 trillion in bond ETFs, which is around three times the levels that it is today. And even then, it would still only be about 4 or 5% of the total bond market. And so we're really optimistic for the growth of bond ETFs. But part of the reason is actually got a lot to do with the bond market itself. Because sure, our competition is other ETF providers. Our competition is sometimes active bond managers. But more and more, the bond market is modernizing through bond ETFs. And we're really looking at our competition as being the whole bond market itself. For us, that's a really, really exciting opportunity because it's changing the way in which bonds are traded and investors are getting access to it. Yeah, for our listeners out there who aren't clear on the difference between buying a bond or buying a bond ETF, what's the key thing they need to keep in mind when they're thinking about adding that to their portfolio? Well, first, buying a bond is really difficult still as an individual investor. We celebrated our 20th anniversary of the first bond ETFs that we launched here in the United States just a few months ago. And 20 years ago, even if you had to buy a single bond, people would be making like multiple phone calls, haggling over price, and it was just a really expensive way in which to trade it, let alone being able to access a basket of bonds like you are with an ETF. And today, you can get hundreds or thousands of bonds in a bond ETF, so you can get diversification. You can get it for a really tight bid offer spread. You can do it incredibly conveniently. You can find a bond ETF commission-free on your phone from the likes of Fidelity. And it's just way more convenient. 
than it ever was in the bond market. And so that's why we think that given the more antiquated nature of how bonds are traded, they're over the counter, they're much more opaque than equities, that bond ETFs are really bringing bonds into a much more modern era. And so I think it, it has incredible benefits for individual investors, just because of the complexity for individuals in particular to gain access to the bond market. They're looking to the bond ETF as the great equalizer. Stocks get a lot of the attention in financial media for sure, but bonds really run things around here. That's where the big money is. But let's turn to stocks for a second because a lot of folks are talking about 2023 being a stock picker's market, being a active manager's market, just given the challenges we're facing this year. So make the case for equity ETFs in conditions like the ones we're expecting to see in 2023. Yeah. Well, look, the great thing about equity ETFs is that they offer incredible choice. So certainly when people think of equity ETFs, they naturally think of the most basic ones, the S&P 500, our IVV ticker, for example. But we offer over 1,300 choices of ETFs and 900 of those choices are equity ETFs. And so you can get every single slice of the equity market from like broad-based market cap to factors to sustainable to themes like electric vehicles. And I think that the benefit for someone building a portfolio is that you can gain access to themes or factors that do well in inflationary times. So if somebody building a portfolio wants access to value, we've got a whole series of value factor-oriented ETFs. If somebody wants access to different slices of the equity markets that may ride a particular theme, you know, like electric vehicles, we offer that as well. And so more and more what's happening is that the lines between active and index investing are blurring. And most of our ETF flows this year in the United States have come from the active management of ETFs. They've come from big discretionary portfolio managers using ETFs as part of their models, using factor tilts, using tactical allocations, or being able to invest behind big themes like electric vehicles. And so I think this whole notion of active and index, we'll look back on in a few years and say that was a quaint 20th century construct, that what ETFs are really doing is that they're blurring the lines because of the choice that we can offer to all sorts of market exposures, even in equities. So many ETFs out there and the industry just continues to grow year after year. Obviously, iShares is a big part of that. You got over 2,500 ETFs and mutual index funds. Listeners will know, we just had Burton Malkiel, the author of A Random Walk on Wall Street. He's a big index guy, but he and Jack Bogle, rest in peace, were always saying, there's just too many funds out there. There's too many ETFs. There's too many index funds. Why do you think we need more? Why does iShares continue to put more out there? Is it a demand thing or is it looking for niches in the market that are still yet to be tapped? Well, I think it's both. It certainly is a demand thing because if you look at broad-based market cap indices, which we call our core series... I think we have a sufficient amount of choice there. And we continue to try and make those more affordable. We continue to reduce fees. And that's really a simplicity and scale element to it. But for many of the other exposures that we have, whether it's in factors or sustainable or themes or different countries and sectors, what clients are asking for is greater ability to customize their portfolio and greater ability to look at slices of the market. And so what we're trying to do is expand that choice because what it offers clients is the ability to customize a portfolio to their particular needs. Some clients will be very bullish 
on electric vehicles or very bullish on advances in agriculture. And so they could use some of our thematic ETFs. Some clients may want to tactically allocate in or out of value exposure, and so they can use our factory ETFs. Now, for a first-time investor, they may just want to invest in IVV and have a simple S&P 500 exposure. And so we're always trying to balance choice and simplicity. For many individual investors, what they're really looking for is simplicity. We've got our core series, and that tends to suit them just fine. But for many other investors, and we count some of the largest wealth managers and some of the largest active asset managers as our clients, it's kind of a strange thing, but active asset managers are clients of iShares. What they're really looking for is exposures to different slices of the market to help with their own active portfolio construction. And so that's where we're always looking at how do we maintain high quality, diversified exposures to even more narrow slices of the market. Yeah, it's the Burger King market out there for investors. Have it your way. And I guess that's what a lot of the ETFs and the ETF issuers are bringing to the market. Have it any which way you want it. And there's almost unlimited choice. Or you could just go plain vanilla and buy an index fund or buy an ETF that tracks the broader market. But you're also offering ETFs around the world. You got no minimums for ETF investing in the US, Europe, and Brazil. What's the pickup like in places like Brazil and Europe for this type of a product, which is not new to the US, but certainly not something that you see a lot of investors in other countries have exposure to as much? Well, I think one of the most dynamic markets in the past few years has been Europe. And it's been dynamic because of the growth of digital wealth platforms. There is no Fidelity equivalent. There is no Charles Schwab equivalent. But there are many dozens of mid-sized digital platforms in Europe. And many of them are increasing access to ETFs and commission-free ETFs. And I think one of the most exciting developments in Europe is the growth of ETF savings plans which if you think about a country like Germany, which doesn't have a strong investing culture in a way that the United States does, just a few years ago, only a few hundred thousand Germans were investing through ETF savings plan. Today, it's a few million Germans, just over 3 million people are investing in iShares ETF savings plans. And they're putting away 100 euros or so every single month in a methodical, simple way to invest. We think that number is going to triple over the next five years. And we think more and more, it's not only growing our ETF business, and it's not only growing some of these digital platforms out there, but it's really changing the investment culture in Europe from a savings culture to an investing culture. But it's doing it, we think, in this much better, more affordable, more diversified way using ETFs. The secret sauce behind ETFs is how precisely they track an index, a sector, or an investing theme, right? Behind the scenes, at BlackRock or iShares, you have great technology. I think you call it Aladdin. And you got teams of people who are doing this millions of times a year. This is part of what is known as the creation and redemption in the ETF world. But for our listeners out there who aren't that familiar, you're the expert on this. You've been doing it for a long time. Explain that what's actually going on in this process to understand really how ETFs work. Samara Cohen, who's our chief investment officer for all of our ETFs and index investing, has this great phrase, which is that there's nothing passive about how we manage iShares and index investing. And when you look underneath the hood, her teams are doing millions of things every year exactly right in order to basically replicate any one of the thousands of different indices that we track. And so that requires people who have great investment acumen, and she's got a team of portfolio managers. It's got great technology so you can bring scale. It's got precision engineering in it so that you can do each of these millions of things exactly right every single time. And they're always looking at things like lending and trading and other aspects to what they do to be able to replicate that index. 
And so it's a much more precise mechanism than I think that people would appreciate. And the other feat of it is that we're always looking and working with our partners around what we call market quality, which is the liquidity of the ETFs. And I think one of the really interesting things, you talked about the bond market, but one of the really interesting things is that last year was a record for us in terms of bond ETF trading all across the world. And this year is surpassing last year's numbers by 40, 45%. Well, you're a product guy. You're running a pretty big division over there at BlackRock, but not necessarily putting money to work. But I know you have your eye on the markets right now. I'm wondering your predictions for 2023 from a product perspective, but also just from a sentiment perspective. You guys watch money flow all the time. You see what's being bought and sold all the time, and you know where demand looks like it might be. So what are you looking at when you look at 2023? I really look at things through the lens of a portfolio, because most of what we do in iShares is through the lens of a portfolio. And I think all of the corrections and volatility of 2022 give investors a great opportunity to rethink how they're thinking about their portfolios. And there really are three things that we're looking at across portfolios across the world. One is bonds, and I think bonds are back. And the yield and the yield and the income generation capability of bonds is quite unlike anything I've seen in the past 10 years or so. And so as a result, really looking at the income generation capabilities of bonds across the spectrum, whether it's in short-term treasuries or investment grade or high yield or municipals and the like. The second thing is I expect that inflation is going to be elevated for a while. And there are many different equities that do well in an inflationary environment. And I think that we've had a decade or more of growth outperforming value. I expect that's going to change next year. And so at least personally, I'm loading up on value. Now, I'm a frugal bargain hunting person by nature. So I've always been waiting for value to come back. But I think this year or next year, it really is going to come back in a big way. But really, equities that do well in an inflationary environment, I think, are really important pieces of a portfolio. And the third piece is just providing some inflation protection generally to a portfolio, because I think that the inflation environment is most harmful to retirees. I think Margaret Thatcher had called it the unseen robber of savers. And I think that's more acute for retirees. And so having some inflation protection in there, whether that's through tips or whether that's through other mechanisms like commodities and the like, I think is really important in the portfolio. So I think it's bonds. I think it's inflation protected equities like value investing. And I think it's just some basic inflation protection, particularly if some of your listeners are retirees and living on more of a fixed income. I think those are really important aspects. And that wouldn't have been true four or five years ago if we were talking, but I think the environment's completely changed. And I do think we're in the midst of a very different regime change. And it's how do you make your portfolio adapt to that? Slow and steady wins the race. Maybe it's the year the tortoise beats the hare, or maybe it's a long period of time where the tortoise beats the hare. Well, we always like to ask our guests for their favorite investing term. Investopedia is a site built on our financial terms. A lot of folks know us for the definitions. What's your favorite investing term? I'm curious. I have some ideas given what you've been doing for your career for the past 20 or 30 years, but what's your favorite? My favorite is cost. And it's perhaps not the favorite term of the industry. It is a favorite of clients. And I'm not just talking about the cost of our investments. I think we're very proud of our ability to reduce fees, even in an inflationary environment this year across iShares. But it's all the hidden costs. It's things like commissions. It's things like taxes. It's things like minimum investing. And I think one of the great 
values of things like ETFs or index investing is that it's reducing the cost of the underlying investment and it's reducing the barriers and all the cost barriers, whether that's commissions or minimum investments for investors. Every penny matters when you're trying to achieve yield and alpha in this industry. And you guys know a lot about that. Salim Ramji, the global head of iShares and index investments for BlackRock. Thanks so much for joining The Express. Thanks, Caleb. I enjoyed being here. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Cara Greenberg, our newsletter editor, who keeps all of Investopedia's newsletters running on time. Cara suggests the January effect, and why not? It seems appropriate. According to our favorite website, the January effect is a perceived seasonal increase in stock prices during the month of January. Market watchers generally attribute this rally to an increase in buying, which follows the selling that typically happens in December due to tax loss harvesting and portfolio rebalancing, and we saw a lot of selling in December. Historical data may support the idea of a January effect, with the month of January experiencing an average gain of 1% for the S&P 500 since the year 1950. But it doesn't always work out that way anyway. In both 2021 and 2020, the S&P 500 was lower in the first month of the year. Phenomena like the January effect and the Santa Claus rally, they're fun to talk about and research, but they're not really useful indicators for long-term investors. I'll be buying stocks in January and every month this year, but deep down inside, I'm hoping the January effect comes true and spills over into February. February, March, and the rest of the year. Good suggestion, Cara. You've already got our socks and the hoodie, so we're going to find something special for you for your suggestion this week. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week. Another year with Mr. Buffett around is a good year for me, and I never get tired of hearing his wisdom. Here's the Oracle of Omaha in an interview with Charlie Rose from last April talking about why he doesn't buy stocks, and he hasn't for a very long time. When I was 11, I picked stocks. I had the whole wrong idea. I thought stocks were things that went up and down, and I charted them. I read books on technical analysis. I read everything. And I thought the important thing was to predict what a stock would do and predict the stock market. And then I read Ben Graham, and I realized that I was doing it exactly the wrong way when I read the book, The Intelligent Investor. And from that point, I never bought another stock. I bought businesses that happened to be publicly traded, but I became an owner of a business and I did not care whether a stock went up or down the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year. And I didn't have any idea what it would do. I didn't know what the stock market would do, but I knew businesses. Warren Buffett, 91 years young, and he just might be onto something. 2023 is going to be another challenging year for investors. That's just the reality of the situation. But it's also going to be a great opportunity to get back to fundamentals, really digging into the research on companies and trying to identify the businesses that are built to weather the storm and come out stronger on the other side. Buffett was citing The Intelligent Investor, one of the great investing Bibles out there by his mentor, Benjamin Graham. If you haven't read that yet, add it to your list, along with Burton Malkiel's Random Walk Down Wall Street. Those are great foundations for investors at all levels. Thanks for joining us this week. It's so good to be back on the tracks with you. And special thanks to Salim Ramji for climbing aboard the Express. We'll post a transcript to our conversation on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast, and we'll link to BlackRock's latest report and all the research we cited on this week's episode in the show notes wherever you get your Express. Are you ready for 2023? Let's go. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.